Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from the fourth annual Fairhope Film Festival in downtown Fairhope, Alabama, November 10th through the 13th, 2016, featuring 40 films and 20 shorts, plus filmmaker panels and gala events. Ticket and film details at fairhopefilmfestival.org. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the financial woes of Jackson State University. Where do they go from here? affect payroll. It will not affect scholarships. It will not affect our uh, daily operations. Then New York Times columnist David Brooks weighs in on the presidential election while visiting Mississippi. Later, teaching Mississippi faith leaders about mental health and the funding formula for the state's public schools may be changing. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Jackson State University says it's cutting operating costs in light of revelations. Its bank account is dwindling fast. The College Board revealed yesterday the university has enough cash reserves on hand for one week, a drop of 89 percent from 2012. Glenn Boyce, Commissioner of Higher Education, told reporters the shrinking of JSU's cash reserves is of great concern to the Institutes of Higher Learning Board. Universities can have things that are costly happen very, very quickly. And there's things you cannot anticipate in the university world. And so it's absolutely essential that you keep a strong cash balance for those things that you can't anticipate. So our other concern certainly is, tops for me personally, is our students. And I want to make sure that our student quality uh, is always provided for students, that we always take care of our students, and that uh, we don't take and in any way affect our students' education. JSU does a great job with their quality education and what they provide for students. And we want to ensure that that continues as long into the future. The other thing that I would comment to you about is, is that, as you saw by the slide, it took three or four years uh, for this decline to happen so significantly. Well, we won't be able to reverse this trend quickly and get back up to that cash balance quickly. This is going to take some hard work. It's going to take a while before we can get back up to these type of cash balances. We're working very closely with the institution. We've got a team in place. Uh, we meet every week, as it was mentioned, and uh, I try to make as many of those meetings as well and also so we meet monthly uh, with the administration to ensure that we're on target with uh, what we need to do and what type of goals we need to set for the future to get the cash balance back where it belongs. Commissioner of Higher Education Glenn Boyce talking with reporters yesterday. JSU spokesperson Olivia Goodhart tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the issue around cash reserves will not affect the day-to-day running of the university. It will not affect payroll. It will not affect scholarships. It will not affect our uh, daily operations. There was also concern about Dr. Carolyn Myers' position. Will she be stepping down? At this point, Dr. Myers is still president of Jackson State University. She has not tendered uh, her resignation, and IHEA would have to address any other issues concerning her employment. I do want to sort of make a clarification is that no organization operates from their cash reserves. Your cash reserve is your savings account. 
and Jackson State receives income from uh, federal and state funding. We receive grants. We have foundation funds. So we would not be operating out of our savings account. And the savings account, what is it for then? Emergencies? That's, that's, that's cash. That's, that's reserve money. It's just like your personal savings account. You use it when there are unexpected expenses. Uh, or opportunities that you want to take advantage of, you may dip into your savings to take care of that. But it's not something that you operate on on a a day-to-day basis. Have you been able to determine how it dwindled so quickly? It was used to expand programs. It was used for new facilities at the university. It was used to enhance our uh, education programs and offerings to our students. Well, if you have your operational expenses and you have these other incomes coming in, couldn't those be used for what you just mentioned? Again, in any life of any organization, um, there are sometimes unexpected expenses. There are sometimes unexpected opportunities that you have to invest in or spend money to take advantage of. So the university does that just as any other organization would. Would you say that JSU has been doing that aggressively and that's why it's dwindled? I wouldn't. I, want, I don't want to characterize it that way. I want to say that this situation is not uncommon at public universities. As a matter of fact, it's been the same situation at a couple of other state universities in the past several years. Those universities work their way out of this situation, and Jackson State will too. Can you tell us who those universities are? I would not like to identify them, Desiree. MPB's Desiree Fraser with JSU spokesperson Olivia Goodhart on the dwindling of the university's cash reserves. Up next, New York Times columnist David Brooks weighs in on the presidential election while visiting Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This election year has been unpredictable, and it can be hard to keep track of what's true or not. But NPR's election team wades through it all so you don't have to. Be informed. Listen to this station every day. I'm Robin Young. New York's 3rd Congressional District includes parts of Long Island and Queens. It was supposed to be a battleground. With Democrat Steve Israel retiring, Republicans really thought that they had a chance to to pick up this seat earlier in the year. Uh, As as the race has developed, though, that, that kind of hasn't happened. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Some Mississippians are casting their votes early for the next president. Others are waiting for Election Day on November 8th. Until then, opinion leaders are making their views known, and New York Times conservative op-ed columnist David Brooks was in Oxford yesterday speaking to University of Mississippi students. Correspondent Matt Kessler caught up with Brooks and asked him how this year's election compares to others he's covered. Uh, it's completely unlike anything else I've ever covered. Uh, you know, I remember in the first Republican debate when Donald Trump, um, he'd insulted Carly Fiorina's face, uh, and then he went after um, some of the other senators for being ugly. <laughs> and I said, I've never seen this before. And so some of the standards that were applied to just how you behave and how you talk, um, that's all gone. And so we're entering really terra incognita. And so I've been surprised by it and sometimes shocked and sometimes just amazed. Do you think this is an outlier or do you think this is a sign of things to come? Well, I think the culture of reality TV and the culture of professional wrestling 
and the relaxed culture of uh, the internet is bound to affect public rhetoric. But I can't imagine it'll stay because when you take away all the normal codes of politeness, then you're just stuck in a world of dog-eat-dog. And I just don't believe we can survive as a country if, you know, you can just do the rankest possible insults. Uh, and frankly, I don't think there are too many other candidates who can get away with accusations of sexual harassment, uh, the Khan family, a lot of things that Trump has survived without too much trouble. I don't think that, I hope the country will not be in such an angry mood or such a change-oriented mood because they're so angry about what's happening that they'll be willing to tolerate that. So it's hard for me to imagine we'll have too many more like this one. Um, a question about journalistic responsibility. Um, you know, in Wednesday night's debate, Trump said that he he doesn't care about the results, perhaps. Uh, in the last debate, he threatened to send his opponent, Hillary Clinton, to jail. Journalistic responsibility, we as journalists, do we need to try to be unbiased, or is there a point when a candidate poses a serious threat to our democratic institutions? Yeah, I do think for, well, there are two kinds of journalists. There are straight reporters and then opinion journalists. I think for the straight reporters, just to report those facts is the job. Uh, and it would become almost... Um, it would justify Trump if it, people were, everything was opinion against him or for him. If there was no, I do believe there's such a thing as truth and fact. And clinging to that in this election has been sometimes tough. But I think that's worth clinging to. And I think straight reporters are part of the craft is being honest to the fact and to the truth. Now, I'm an opinion journalist. And so, frankly, I've written 8 million columns criticizing Donald Trump and saying he's not, he doesn't cross the threshold necessary to be president and it should not be president. He's polluting the atmosphere in which we raise our kids. Having done that, and a lot of people like me have done this, I can't say we've had any effects. So <laughs> um, I, uh, when we write opinion columns or broadcasts, we're not really telling people what to think. We're just trying to get them to think. And uh, that's all we can do is prompt a response. And so we shouldn't have any illusions that just because of a bunch of pundits say something, everyone else is just going to get in line. What, what does November 9th look like for the Republican Party? I would say that um, what's going to happen is that we had a, for the Republican Party had a paradigm, a way of thinking of the world, which was basically based on Reagan and the policies that seemed to make sense for Republicans in the 1980s. But over time, those policies became less relevant to the country because new problems arose. But that paradigm still intellectually still existed, and it was getting staler and more rotten. And then Trump comes along and he just smashes it. And so I do think what's going to happen is after that old paradigm is broken, uh, there's going to be a competition from a bunch of different paradigms. So, so you're saying that you don't think Trump offers any paradigm itself, it's just that he's smashing an old paradigm? Well, I do think debate has shifted so the public debate is less left-right and more open-closed. And so the fact that he's against trade, against um, much immigration against America playing a big role in the world, that's, that's people who feel that they're being blasted by globalization and they want to protect. And so I think that protect ethos is going to continue and be the dominant ethos of the Republican Party. And I do think it will be a dominantly a party of uh, white high school and some college-educated people. Uh, the problem is there aren't enough of those to make a majority and there'll be less every year. So how the party expands from that base is, to me, a big mystery. 
Correspondent Matt Kessler with New York Times op-ed columnist David Brooks in Oxford. Up next, teaching Mississippi faith leaders about mental health. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. Republican legislative leadership wants to re-examine the state's education funding formula for public schools. We have been fighting to see that the teachers have what they need to instruct our children. They want to know if there's a way to get more money into classrooms. MAEP is a very complicated formula. We take a closer look at the Mississippi Adequate Education Program on At Issue this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB-TV. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The State Medical Association says Mississippi is in a public health crisis. Reduced budgets and a steady need for health care have put many Mississippians at risk. This is true for mental health in the state as well. To help bridge this gap, mental health workers and faith leaders in the state are gathering to exchange ideas and tools today and tomorrow. The conference at Bellhaven College includes workshops and panel discussions. We spoke with Bradford Smith, director of Bellhaven's Institute for International Care and Counsel. He says faith leaders have a strong desire to help with mental health in the, con- in the congregations and beyond. What the national research has shown is that uh, pastors really feel a sense of responsibility that them and their churches should be helpful in this area. But um, they don't know how to talk about it. And so about two-thirds of pastors seldom ever bring up mental health in a sermon or in a teaching context. They want to talk about it. They don't know how to talk about it. Not only do they not know how to talk about it, they don't always know how to help And so they feel paralyzed. And there has to be some fear, too, because afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. There is fear. And so one of the things that we've been doing in this whole initiative is we started out doing focus groups with pastors all over Jackson. Been doing that for the past six months. And one of the messages that's come out is we'd really like more training. We would like more intensive training, and we would like to know how to integrate mental health ministry into the overall ministry of the church. Many churches already have health ministries. Many of those health ministries don't have a mental health component yet, but they're on the way with some structure that can help with that. How is the relationship going between uh, church members and those who take care of the mentally ill. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very important relationship, and sometimes historically there's been distrust, if you're meaning between, for example, pastors and professional mental health workers. Yes. Is and there an inter- a fear of interference on There's a fear side? of interference. There is a fear that um, uh, uh, often mental health workers have not uh, been as spiritually attuned uh, as as pastors would like them to be. And so part of the goal of this summit is to bring together, it's not just about knowledge and agenda building, it's about building more trusting relationships between the pastors in the greater Jackson area and the mental health workers of in private practice and the community health agencies all across the board to build relationships so there can be easier referrals, easier conversations, more collaboration. 
this is not an either or situation. I mean, if someone is mentally ill, you want to help them from your side of the street and you want mental health care providers to help them on the other side. Right. It's not an either or. But, you know, I was uh, uh, I'm originally from the Boston area. I was in private practice for 20 years up in the Boston area. And I tried to work closely with churches because I saw the advantages Churches are often uh, the, the the spiritual home for people. It's where they feel safe and and feel like they can can trust a pastor and and the people. It's kind of a family for them. So to have a close collaboration, to be working together, and not feel like there's a pulling apart uh, that 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 people are helping in two completely separate ways with two completely separate mindsets is really a helpful thing for it. The State Medical Association has said Mississippi is in a health care crisis. Large part. Of that is mental health. Hmm. So what is the overall goal? The overall goal of this initiative? Of this initiative, obviously, it's to help those who are mentally ill. Right. Is it to provide a more comprehensive care for that individual? Part of it is is to, first of all, get people talking within churches for it to be okay and and how to talk about this, because every time there is silence in the church, it reinforces the kind of sense of stigma and shame and isolation that people feel. So the first part is is for churches from small to very large to ask the question as they talk about this together— how can we be helpful? How can we involve more education? How can we involve more support? How can we help people uh, understand from a spiritual perspective what they're struggling with? Uh, and um, and how can, uh, you know, mental, mental illness has been called the no casserole illness. It's not the kind of thing that people in churches often rally around individuals and families like they do when there's some other kind of physical illness like cancer or heart disease. So to try to normalize this more and uh, get it out on the table so that people can rally around and help and so there can be good referrals and we can work together is the goal. Dr. Bradford Smith is the director of Bellhaven's Institute for International Care and Counsel. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. The summit bringing together faith leaders and mental health professionals will take place today and tomorrow at Bellhaven University. Up next, the funding formula for the state's public schools may be changing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. There's a lot to be discovered about Mississippi. Like the little-known places you can visit on a Mississippi road trip. Or where to find a local brewery for a unique experience. Every Friday morning at 10, we take you on an hour-long journey through Mississippi. It's music, cuisine, culture, and history. And you never know where our next stop will be. I'm Mary Margaret Miller. And I'm Sharia Brent. Be sure to join us Friday mornings at 10 for Next Stop Mississippi on MPB Think Radio.
This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Republican legislative leaders want to re-examine the state's education funding formula for public schools, known as MAEP. They want to know if there's a way to get more money into classrooms 20 years after the formula was created. An out-of-state firm has been hired to look into retooling the formula. Tonight's At Issue on MPB-TV examines the topic in depth. In this clip, Joyce Helmick, head of the Mississippi Association of Educators, tells Wilson Stribling, MAEP is probably a good formula, but it's only been fully funded twice since it was created. First of all, we think the Mississippi Adequate Education Program is a student-based program, and it was developed in 1997 by lawmakers, education professionals, and stakeholders. It was also reviewed in 2005. The problem with it is that it has not been funded but two times since its inception. So we think it's a good formula, but it's not been funded, so we cannot make sure. We're not sure that it's a, it works or not. So you would not be in favor of reworking a formula because it's, it's not truly been tested? Right. It's, 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 a, it, it's been a, uh, uh, worked on by professionals, and it's, uh, according to them, it works. But we don't know because it's not been fully funded. What do you know about this, uh, this outfit that's been hired to look at it, EdBuild? Uh, EdBuild is a billion-dollar company who has uh, come and paid half of their fee to come into Mississippi and look at this formula and the way we do things here. Um, the CEO has uh, is on record for talking about in, uh, the um, bankruptcy of schools. So our question is, do they want to come in? Why are they coming here? This uh, billion-dollar school, I mean, billion-dollar business that is charter school business. Are they trying to bring charter, uh, charter schools into Mississippi? Do you think they have an agenda, or do you think the Republican leadership in the legislature that hired them uh, has an agenda that's not in the best interest of Mississippi students? Um, we think that they are, yes, we do. We think that they are coming here to look at our schools to possibly expand the charter schools. Uh, the formula that we have works. I mean, I mean, we, we, we know that we have a good formula for our students. It has not been funded. So the, the responsibility of our lawmakers is to ensure that all of our students have proper funding so that they can all be successful no matter what where they are. We have a funding crisis in our state. And if our viewers want to look at that funding crisis, they can go to maetoday.org forward slash funding crisis, and they can actually look at uh, how that their district has been affected by this funding crisis. Aside from fully funding the existing MAEP formula, what would you recommend that the governor, that lawmakers do to, uh, to correct the education problems in our state? In my term as president of the Mississippi Association of Educators, I have traveled from north to south and east and west, and I have been in many, many schools in our state. I have been in high-performing districts, and I've been in low-performing districts. I want to invite our governor and our other leaders to come with me so that I can show them these high-performing districts and these high-performing schools and what is working in those schools. 
And then I want to take them to the low-performing schools, and I want to let them see that what we need in those schools is the resources. And the only way to get those resources is to fund our schools so that they, all the students in the low-performing districts can have the same resources and the same advantages that our high-performing school districts have. Well, if MAEP was created to sort of equalize all the districts to make sure that some were not getting left behind while others were getting more funding, uh, how do we have a situation like you described? Uh, we don't. We haven't funded it, so we don't know. We don't have the funding for those low-performing districts and the poor districts because we have not funded that. We've not provided those resources for um, for those districts. Mississippi Association of Educators President Joyce Helmick in a clip from tonight's episode of At Issue. The episode airs on MPB TV tonight at 7.30. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Gestalt Gardner, Next Stop Mississippi, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only here on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from C Spire Business Solutions, helping businesses move into the future with next-generation fiber optic internet access. More at 855-C-SPIRE-2. C-SPIRE. Customer Inspired. 